This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. One year ago this week, Central Florida recorded its first coronavirus case. After a long 12 months, vaccines are becoming more widely available and cases are beginning to decline from their peak over the winter. To talk more about what we've learned from the pandemic and the work that's still ahead to try and conquer coronavirus, I'm joined by Abe Abariah and Dr Ali Mokhtad. Abe Abariah is WMFE's health reporter. Abe, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Dr. Ali Mokhtad is a professor of health metrics sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Dr. Mokhtad, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with you, Dr. Mokhtad. How has the last year been for you? Very difficult watching uh, the pandemic unfold. And unfortunately, uh, we've seen waves after waves simply because of our behavior and our uh, irresponsible behavior in many places and the political division in the U.S. Back in April last year, we talked to you on WMFE. You talked about COVID projections for Florida. And back then, IHME was projecting between 4,300 and 6,700 deaths or something. Actual numbers turned out to be higher. It was around 6,800 COVID-19 fatalities by August. When you think about what we were thinking of then and what IHME was predicting, you know, what goes through your mind when we look at where we are now? Florida alone, we're sitting at 30,000 plus fatalities. We're closing on on about 2 million cases. What do you think about when you sort of reflect back on how things looked back then and what we're looking at now? So back then when we provided our projections, we assumed that if you reach a death per day per million, you will go into a lockdown. And unfortunately, it didn't happen in many states, and including in Florida. Also, we assume that uh, opening up of businesses in Florida will happen at a later time. It happened prematurely, so we underestimated the number of mortality. What The lesson we have learned from what we have seen right now is, unfortunately, it's in our hands. If we are to wear a mask and keep a safe distance, we can control this virus, and we can do a good job at it. Unfortunately, we had more deaths, more infection than we expected, all of us, simply because none of us did a good job in preventing this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And just back to some of those measures you were talking about in that first interview, you talked about the ways those projections could be reduced. You talked about masking and staying at home and saying those things were more important in Florida because of our demographics. I mean, given Florida's population, though, do you think things could have been worse? Definitely, it could. So many people in Florida uh, were doing the right things, wearing a mask. If you look at Florida, for example, the school uh, closing the educational facility early on, it has a huge impact on mobility in Florida. So people in Florida did what it takes early on. Unfortunately, the premature opening of businesses sent the wrong signal to the public. And that's why we had a second wave and now a third wave this winter. We can talk more about that uh, later, but I want to bring you into this conversation, Abe. As a health reporter, how do you wrap your arms around a story as big and complex as this? Um, I mean, I'll be frank with you. I I don't know that I fully wrap my head around it at this point a year into it. You know, kind of looking back, it it seems kind of naive when we were thinking about, you know, March of 2020. And back then, to me, when I was looking at COVID-19, I was sort of looking at it through the lens of I covered the Zika Um, issues that had come up and we'd seen some cases from uh, Zika pop up in Florida. We'd seen some local transmission down in South Florida. And so in my mind, I was sort of looking at it from that lens that that was sort of the trajectory I expected with it. And, you know, kind of looking at it now where we're, we're seeing 
you know, 5,000 plus cases per day, um, you know, more than 100 deaths per day in the state of Florida, I become a bit jaded because now I look at that and I think, okay, those numbers are going in the correct direction. And that's actually, you know, not too bad c- compared to where we've been, you know, during these, some of these high marks. So it has definitely been a steep learning curve. And, and there's been a lot of moving the goalposts, I guess, would be the metaphor for where we're, you get used to seeing something and seeing numbers uh, as big as they've become. And then you just kind of get used to it and you, you become a bit uh, desensitized to it. What sticks out to you, Abe, from your reporting over the last 12 months? I think the the thing that shocked me the most, and I, I've talked with a number of health reporters about this, I, I really did not see politicization of public health and politicization of masking, that becoming such a, a red versus blue issue, which really is, is really is a shame that, that, that that's how it sort of played out because, and Dr. Mokdak can speak to this, this is, you know, one of those things that if masking had been um, universally adopted a lot sooner, um, if it was more universally adopted now, you know, it, it really would help stop the spread of this and slow it down and, and would have made a big impact. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, you know, just because of my own, you know, experience in, in my home life and doing some of these interviews with people who work in ICUs and people who, you know, some of the chaplains I've talked to, this last year has been incredibly difficult on frontline healthcare workers. And I forget the name of the reporter at the New York Times, but they went through and did and spent a few days in the ICU and saw, you know, a number of people die. And and this was not during a massive surge. This was recently. And, you know, they kind of coined it as this collective PTSD that this entire generation of, of healthcare workers and people in hospitals are are collectively experiences, especially those, like I said, in, in ICUs and seeing the worst of the worst of it. And that to me has been something that is really going to stick with us, I think, for long term. I think that's going to have some pretty important impacts in, in how many people stay in nursing, how many people um, leave the field, how many people you know are able to continue doing this kind of work down the, down the line. So that, that's definitely some of the stuff that's really stuck with me. Dr. Mokhtar, do you feel like the science of predicting how pandemics behave has improved just based on what you've seen and what we've observed over the course of 2020? Yes, we're getting much better at predicting what's happening, simply because we have much better data right now. Early on, we had a mandate. Now we have a mobility and a mandate, so we can tell exactly what's the impact of a mandate. We can tell what's the impact of a mask mandate on mask wearing. So we're having better data and we're having better methodology in order to predict what's going to happen in the future. And that has been very helpful, especially right now, since we see people are more likely and politicians are more likely to accept science and new administration and they're following the science in terms of vaccine and mask wearing. It strikes me that what we knew this time last year was just really inadequate, right? I mean, there were there were previous events that we could talk a little bit about, like SARS, for example. There was the influenza outbreak from, you know, 100 years back. But blending all those things together, like the increased mobility that we have in 2020 uh, and, and sort of looking at how pandemics behave, it just seems like an awfully steep learning curve for everyone. It was. It was for everybody, especially for us in the scientific community. We're learning uh, a lot about this virus. For example, in the Spanish flu pandemic, we knew it was H1N1. Right now for this virus, for example, it's mutating so fast simply because of the high level of infection. 
And we're seeing new variants that are making the vaccines less effective and there is no immunity against them from previous infections. So it's changing so fast and we need to keep up with it in order to provide the best information for the public and for the policymakers. Mm-hmm. I, you know, thinking back and listening back to some of the, the stories we heard from last year or some of the press conferences, I mean, you dug out some sound from that first press conference in Florida about the pandemic. The next few weeks are going to be uncomfortable for all of us because places and events that we love to frequent have uh, either been closed or events have been postponed or canceled. Uh, and that is a necessary step that we have to take within this community to keep all of us, all of us overall safe. We do this out of an abundance of caution with the hope that by limiting interactions between our residents, we can stop the spread of COVID-19. And and at some point, we'll be able to resume our normal lives, and we hope that that will come soon. But we know that this is probably uh, weeks to months away. Just talk us through kind of what you heard back then. One of the things that, that struck me the most going back through some of that that old um, audio was, was listening to Mayor Jerry Demings and, you know, it, it was very striking to see it. You know, you get used to seeing everyone masked in distance. And at this point uh, in the pandemic, everyone was sort of gathered together. Uh, you could tell that, that the cameras were a lot closer. Uh, nobody was masked. And, you know, and, and Jerry Demings, to his credit, was one of the politicians at the time who was trying to publicly have a more long view of this. And, and he talked about this being weeks to months of uh, an issue that we're going to have to deal with and change the way, change our behavior. Which seemed like a very long time then, but seems naive now, right? It really does. A year on in where, where things really haven't changed in a, a dramatic way back to a more normal uh, situation. So yeah, it, it really was uh, fascinating. And, and, you know, some of my own reporting back then too, we were originally reporting about if the CDC was talking about avoiding unnecessary travel and what kind of impact that might have on the tourism economy in central Florida and that if people are scared of the virus, it has economic impacts, people are going to have less money and they'll travel. We hadn't even really contemplated the idea that, you know, government officials were going to shut down theme parks, let alone um, tell people to stay at home and, and the just vast economic impacts of that. So, you know, there, there's a lot of this looking back in, you know, in hindsight that just feels um, like we we didn't have the ingenuity to, to think about how bad it possibly could have been, I think. Dr. Mukhtad, thinking about the nature of this virus, and you mentioned before about we could be looking at another seasonal wave come wintertime, does this mean that you anticipate COVID-19 could become like the seasonal flu and we'll have to line up for a vaccine every year, just like a flu shot? I hope not, but uh, you know we need to prepare for the worst case scenario and hopefully it will never happen. So let's plan for it, that it will be a seasonal virus. And then we need to take a vaccine every year. And the way to stay ahead of it is we need to know what's circulating, what type of variants through genomics surveillance, sequencing the virus and creating a new vaccine every year that will make sure it's effective against what's circulating and plan for it. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. But in reality, with this virus, it's very stubborn. Let's plan for it. One of the other things that struck me about your conversation with WMFE last year, you talked about the need for compassion for people struggling to make ends meet, pay bills, put food on the table because of the economic impact of COVID, and for healthcare workers on the front lines of this pandemic. Thinking about that now, do you feel like people have stepped up compassionately over the last year, and and are we now sort of hitting a bit of compassion fatigue? 
Yes and no. Uh, I'm very impressed by how people came together during this pandemic. And uh, even now with the stimulus that the government is helping the poor people and people who have lost their job and small businesses. So we've seen a lot of donation increasing during COVID-19. People who can afford to donate But unfortunately, many people don't have the means to do so. But the community has come together, especially at the local community. And I'm very much impressed by all of this. And we need to remain very compassionate, all of us, and especially for doctors, as Abe mentioned. Most of our physicians are tired. They've seen a lot of misery and death, young people dying at their hands. We haven't seen the impact, the mental health impact on our medical staff, nurses, everybody who's working in a hospital. And we need to be aware of all of this as we open up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As far as vaccinations go, uh, there's been some criticism over how Florida has rolled out its vaccinations and a little bit of confusion too, right, about who can get it and where they can get it and how. For you personally, though, Abe, there is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, as there is for many folks when it comes to vaccinations, right? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so earlier back in December, part of Governor Ron DeSantis' executive order did say that hospitals could vaccinate people under 65 that they viewed as medically vulnerable to COVID-19. That, in practice, has been exceedingly difficult to see done. Um, The governor has very much wanted folks that are over 65 to be first in line to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and obviously there, you know, you can debate the, the pros and cons of vaccinating different groups and in what order. But in practicality, people who are medically vulnerable under 65 had, um, there were very few vaccines that were given to hospitals to do this. It came pretty late in the game and the hospitals uh, very much focused on patients with cancer, patients who were getting organ transplants, some of the obviously the highest, highest risk level Mm -hmm. uh, of individuals. Now, in the last week, we've seen the governor come out and say that there's a form that a doctor can fill out and say, I certify that, you know, I have a relationship with this patient and this patient is medically vulnerable. And the end result of that is that you you suddenly opened up uh, for most people to be able to reach out to their primary care or specialists that they have and get authorization to get a vaccine. And that is exactly what I was able to do. I, I uh, have had asthma since I was in childhood. My BMI, my, my body mass is no longer obese, but I have been in that for most of my life, uh, either overweight or obese by my body mass index. And so when I talked to my primary care doctor, she looked at those factors and a few other things and decided that, you know, she, she would feel more comfortable with me being able to get the vaccine. And with the FEMA sites that were opening up at that point, they had just opened up and I was able to go there with the form and they, you know, looked at the form, looked at my ID and I was able to get my first dose last week. And so it was very smooth once the process opened up. But that being said, there are still a lot, a lot, a lot of hurdles to getting uh, vaccinated. And, you know, we're seeing this in different groups because, you know, you do need to be kind of tech savvy. You need to be news savvy and, and staying on top of who is eligible when. And so there's a lot of groups that are uh, being underrepresented in getting the vaccine. And so there, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in getting it rolled out, going door to door in communities that have lower rates of vaccination and trying to get people to, to go ahead and, and sign up for this and taking away some of those hurdles and making it easier. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a, a lot to be done still, but I, I think that within the last uh, week or so, we're seeing the floodgates open and that we're 
we're at a point now where it's 21%, uh, more than 21% of adults over 18 in Florida have gotten at least the first shot. Mm -hmm. And that's going to continue to increase. And hopefully that will continue to increase to a point where it starts having some some real epidemiological effects. We start actually seeing some real herd immunity. Dr. Mokhtar, how optimistic are you about the next phase of this pandemic? Where do you think we are? How much further do we need to go to get to a place where we're through the worst of this? Very optimistic, simply because we're rolling out the vaccines and all the problems early on with the vaccination campaign are being solved right now. Mm -hmm. And we will have more vaccines available for everybody. So I'm very optimistic. Cases will keep coming down, mortality all the way till next winter. We will have another surge next winter simply because of seasonality. But as long as we vaccinate a lot of people, we will have much less mortality. What will dictate the next phase of the pandemic is... uh, our behavior, we have to remain resilient and vigilant until everybody is vaccinated. That's one. And two, keep an eye on the new variants and make sure there is no variant that's coming up that will make the vaccines less effective. Otherwise, we should be in good territories all the way from now on. Well, uh, Dr. Ali Mukhtar, Professor of Health Metrics Sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, thanks for your time. Thank you. And thanks also to Abe Abariah, WMFE's health reporter. Appreciate you joining us as well. Thank you. Up next, a closer look at the pandemic's impact on mental health. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The health impacts of coronavirus go beyond the physical effects of the disease. The pandemic has also profoundly affected people's mental health, from grief and loss to fear, disorientation and the trauma of social isolation. So what kind of help is out there and what's the outlook one year on from the start of the pandemic? Well, Eric Welch, Executive Director for the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Greater Orlando, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it, as always. Let's just talk a little bit about where we are now. It's a year since the first COVID-19 case was identified in Central Florida. When you look back at the last 12 months, how would you sum up the impact of this pandemic on people mentally? I suppose you can't overstate it, Matthew. I mean, we brought mental health to the forefront during a pandemic. It's something we never anticipated that we all had to start looking at our own mental health, our friends' mental health, our coworkers. So it really has brought everything kind of into your core, so to speak, of focusing on your yourself and your own mental health and uh, moving through the different waves that we've seen over the past year. Mm-hmm. And now that we're to the anniversary, we know that there's there's a little bit of, of grief and recycling all over again, that we're kind of refeeling these things all over again. That's an interesting point, too, because I wanted to ask you a little bit about what that anniversary means in terms of um, a triggering event in itself, because we see that with other traumatic events of at the one-year, two-year mark, etc., uh, that can be a source of trauma for people. Do you see that happening with COVID-19 or, or because we're still in it, is, is it slightly different? I think it's a little of both. I think, you, I think you said it well there. I think obviously anytime you're marking a traumatic event in your life uh, and we're all kind of remembering back to what was the last thing that we did, we're all hitting that right now. And it, uh, it is kind of a, a reminder of where things are, where how they're getting better, but they're not there yet. So I think you've got you have some of both. Who are you seeing affected most? Like in terms of the people that you've been helping out at NAMI, who are you hearing from more than others, perhaps? It's 
you know, it's hard to it's hard to pick like who who's affected more than somebody else, right? We're all affected in one way or the other, but certainly the effect on our young people, we don't even know yet. Everything from the lack of physical contact to parents, the balance, you know, everything that young people are dealing with, you know, whether you're a, a senior in high school that's trying to figure out prom or you're uh, a middle schooler trying to figure out, you know, when are you going to be back to your normal schedule? I think young people are going to be feeling these effects uh, a little more. Unfortunately, we saw in Las Vegas that there was 18 suicides within a very mm -hmm. short amount of time. And it was so, so desperate there in Clark County, Nevada, which is one of the largest in the in the country, that they they sent everybody back. So uh, certainly, the all of the young people, you know, ages fourteen to twenty five, I think, are going to be feeling this with a little bit different lens than the rest of us. I wanted to just run a stat by you as well, according to the CDC. Hospital emergency departments also saw the total number of visits with from kids with mental health needs go up between April and October last year. Are you seeing similar, like a similar track in Central Florida? Well, what we're seeing in in, in Central Florida, just across the board, is a reach out for support, and whether that's mm -hmm. family members, parents, uh, young people. You know, we do a program called Ending the Silence, where we go into high schools directly and. Uh, we've always done it, talk about mental health and what you can do, but we're seeing uh, more young people asking for, you know, how do I get help m maybe more than ever? Certainly, as always, the school counselors are, are overloaded and they've been overloaded. I, I don't want to say we're seeing a peak here in Central Florida, but we are seeing just the trend that we see nationwide is happening here as well. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit before, you, you alluded to the fact that we're not even quite sure what the long-term impacts are going to be, but when you contemplate the generation of young people that have been living through this and you know, are coming of age, they're either thinking about prom or uh, contemplating um, college, you know, the next step after high school, what are some of your fears potentially about what impact this may have on them as a generation? We already knew ahead of time you know, before COVID that, you know, suicide was the second leading cause of death of, of young people. So anything that might move that needle even farther, you know, is quite frankly kind of scary. And what we need mm -hmm. to do now is exactly what you're doing. We need to focus on mental health. We need to put it at the forefront of everything that we, we do for young people, continue to talk about it, continue to remind them that there's, there's help and hope, continue to get them in to see professionals if necessary. And, you know, we've always said end the stigma. And that, again, that may be one of the silver linings of all this of that, is that young people are talking more about it than ever. Parents are, are talking more about it than ever. That the antidote to all this is to just be very aware of your own mental health and, uh, and, and what you need to do about it at any age, but especially for this long-term effect. Our national medical advisor said that there's going to be a mental health pandemic as well. Uh, and the end of it will have a long tail. So this, you know, long tail of whether it's PTSD or dealing with, you know, the loss of some of these things, you know, 10 years from now, maybe they'll be doing like, hey, did you miss your prom? Well, hey, we're going to do a 28-year-old prom, you know, stuff like that. We're going to see that stuff pop up and it, it'll be part of life to what did we do? What did we lose back here? And now how can we 
incorporated into our new life, that kind of thing. If you're just joining us, my guest is Eric Welch. He's the executive director of NAMI of Greater Orlando. We're talking about the mental health impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. So thinking about beyond getting some of these issues out in the open and talking about it, how can parents, friends, and educators help, and what should they be looking out for? I think the most thing that everybody can do is just watch for warning signs. You know, if there are um, eating habits and sleeping habits and uh, anger outbursts and all of that type of stuff, keep a real close eye on that. Obviously, try to maintain a normal life. We've been saying it now for 12 months. We're all doing it, right? Try to maintain some sort of normalcy. Uh, and get people talking and, and get people listening. I, we, we've said this more than once that, you know, when you ask somebody, how are you? It's not just, hey, how are you? It's no, no, how are you? Tell me what's going on. You know, let, let me hear what you're dealing with. Because again, the more you can get that out in the open, the more than you can figure out in your own life um, how to cope with it. Beyond getting help, what are you telling people to do? Or what, what kind of advice can you offer to people to take care of themselves? Yeah, in the world of self-care, you know, there's there's various types. There's physical, you know, eating right and exercising right, things we always know, and social, getting together with friends, and, you know, the emotional part, feeding your brain. But an interesting part of all of this is we've actually seen a increase in kind of a spirituality, you know, whether it's religion or, uh, you know, people are getting more connected to their own core because this has brought us down to our core. So all of those things on a daily, weekly basis uh, are ways to keep coping. You know, know what makes you happy. For me, it's music. For some people, it's exercise. For some people, it's reading. But know what makes you happy. And sometimes you actually have to force yourself through it. You have to say, I'm today, I'm going to find something that gives me joy. And, uh, and, and another thing is find things to be thankful for. You know, it's 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 2021 and it's amazing that we can look at each other and like we're on Star Trek and uh, talk to each other and and have conversations like this. Everybody's experiencing this at the same time, right? We're all experiencing it in a slightly different way. But if you are if you see somebody who's struggling, but you're also struggling yourself, you've got you've got a couple of things to balance out there. What, what would your advice be to somebody who is themselves? struggling with some mental health challenges because of the pandemic, and they're also trying to help somebody, whether it's a young person or somebody else, who's also going through some troubles. Like, what? how do they deal with that? Mm-hmm. The first thing is know where you're at. I mean, know yourself. That if, if you know, if, if you're not in a good place, then you should know that. Uh, the second is, we always say it, NAMI, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on to somebody else. That... Uh, that so you you have to take care of yourself first and there may be a time you know you are the support person in somebody else's life there may be a time that you can't be that right now and vice versa you may be looking for support and they may have to say uh not today but um the key i think is to maintain the communication right send those text messages reach out to family and friends you know how the isolation is always not the good thing so the key is to continue to connect. What are some success stories you've heard or you've seen unfold over the last 12 months? Yeah, it's really been amazing. I mean, I think the resiliency, I mean, we've all been put to the test of our resiliency. Um, and I think everybody has, you know, the word for 2020, at least one of them was pivot. You know, everybody has pivoted into uh, whether it's whether it's a, a new employer environment, a new work environment. 
uh, new environments like this. I mean, the success stories across the board um, are the resiliency. I mean, and we're it's a year and we're still here and we're still talking about it and trying to figure it out. I think that's the real success for everybody. Um, and, and as I mentioned, the, the silver lining of, of mental health that I think uh, this has brought mental health to the forefront. The, some of my favorite stats are uh, pre-COVID, one in five of us would be uh, have, would have a mental health condition in any given year. Hmm. Then in about August, USA Today did a new study, and they said that was maybe 35 to 40 percent. You know, by that they were, they just did an overall study, and then there was another study that said nine out of ten of us can find one uh, negative effect on their mental health in the past 2020. Nine out of 10 of us. My question is, what's wrong with that last person? Because I'm pretty sure everybody can find one mental health detrimental thing in the past year. So uh, back to the success story. The success story is we're able to navigate through that. We do have some sort of system. We do have, uh, we, we have the professionals that can help. So the success story is, you know, we're, we're still here and we're still doing the best we can. Eric, when you think about this from a mental health perspective, how do you think this pandemic is going to change how people handle stress or crisis situations in the future? Well, we certainly would hope that the next stress, you know, when you've gone through something like this, that the next stress is not going to feel quite as bad, right? I mean, this is what happens whenever you you have a traumatic event and then you know, the guy in front of you doesn't go at the red light, the green light because he's on his phone. Maybe it's not as, as stressful as, as it was a year ago. So my hope is, is that it, it does put life into perspective. And as things are coming back, and they are, so there's something to be happy about. I saw an article today that said uh, vaccines may be a surplus instead of a scarcity sooner than later. So mm -hmm. which creates a whole other set of issues. But uh, in terms of getting everybody vaccinated and getting things, you know, back to normal. Uh, I think that's what you have to do. Focus on the positive. Again, try to be thankful for something every day. I, I do believe that as we come out of this, you know, we're all going to be, wow, we, we just, we just all ran a marathon together. Well, Eric Welch is the executive director for the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Grace Orlando. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Still to come, working to overcome vaccine disparities in Central Florida. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Vaccinations are more widely available now as more people become eligible, but there are still questions about whether COVID-19 vaccines are getting to the people who need them the most. Communities of colour have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, and now advocates are working to try and overcome disparities in vaccine distribution. Well, Bakari Burns is the Orlando City Commissioner for District 6. He's also the President and CEO for Orange Blossom Family Health. Uh, Bakari, welcome back to Intersection. Thank you. Hi, pleasure to be here. Also joined by Jasmine Burney-Clark. She's the founder of the Equal Ground Education Fund. It's a civic engagement organisation that's partnering with the Orlando City Commissioners Regina Hill and Robert Stewart to ensure seniors on the west side of Orlando have better access to the coronavirus vaccine. Jasmine, thank you for being here as well. Thank you for having me. So Jasmine and Bakari, you've both been pretty outspoken about the racial disparity uh, in vaccine distribution in Central Florida. I wonder if you could describe what's going on. Um, Bakari, if we could start with you. 
Yeah, sure. Well, so I, I became alarmed when we started to see the results of the individuals who had been vaccinated here in Orange County. And there was a huge disparity uh, in the number of uh, African-American or minority community members who were uh, being vaccinated compared to our uh, Caucasian um, community members. And so at that point, we decided to start to reach out uh, to Walmart. This was during the time when it was mentioned that Walmart would be providing the vaccine as well, well as Publix. And so what we did, we had a uh, press conference, went door to door collecting names and then asking people about their experiencing and attempting to get the vaccine. So we heard that a lot of seniors were having problems with the online process, uh, just the availability, as well as, you know, just seeing that the convention center seemed so far away for them. And some of them didn't even know where the convention center was. So uh, that prompted me to place a call to the uh, a few executives at Walmart. And they mentioned that they were, would be erecting a mass vaccination site at the Walmart on Princeton, which I thought was a great location. Uh, but then I asked them to consider having some type of offline registration process where our seniors could uh, actually get an appointment by making a phone call or something uh, to that matter. And then I, and fortunately, they came back with that type of system that has allowed us to get uh, a lot of our seniors on to the um, get appointments. And many of them have been vaccinated, receiving their first shot. Mm -hmm. And things are changing quite rapidly, it seems. So incrementally, um, access is expanding. In spite of that, though, uh, uh, Commissioner Burns, are you still sort of seeing a little bit of some, some hurdles in the future as to getting the vaccine out to the people who need it most? I, I do see a few hurdles, but I am uh, feeling very confident uh, because of some of the work with the, uh, other elected officials, uh, Ms. Bernie Clark, that there has been uh, more sites that have opened. The uh, registration process seems to be a little easier. So I do see a, a light at the end of the tunnel. One, one population that I remain concerned about are our seniors or individuals who are homebound to, who may not be able to get out to some of these vaccination sites. Uh, and so I do believe that we need to consider having some type of mobile process where we can identify these seniors who are homebound and take these vaccines right out to their to their home. So, so that's a population that uh, I do remain concerned that uh, hopefully we won't take our eyes off ensuring that they get the vaccination as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Jasmine, how do you see the disparity playing out and, and um, how is your organization working to try and bridge some of that gap? Yep. So last week when we announced our partnership with the city of Orlando commissioners, it was the same day that Florida reported 2.7 million people in Florida were vaccinated and only 6% of them were black folks. Um, we saw that that and actually was less than that. It was less than 6% in the state of Florida. We in 2020 um, prioritized our work around voter engagement and voter education and did a lot of outreach via phone calls and text messages. About it. it was a really good time and a really good opportunity to use those same outreach efforts, tools and tactics to not just turn our folks out to vote, but to also make sure that they had the ability to get access to the vaccines. We want to prioritize access um, as the number one way for folks to know that they 
you know, have the ability to be vaccinated and not necessarily pressure anyone into getting it. If they wish to, that is certainly their choice, but access is the number one way. And based on the rollout from our state officials, the, the locations where people could access it weren't in their actual communities. The second issue was that transportation was a disparity for our community as well. You've uh, spoken out about that a little bit, uh, Jasmine, right? I mean, you, you uh, posted on Facebook that, um, you know, one of the problems was the where these the vaccination sites were going. Uh, you said that they'd been specifically placed in high-income and high-profile neighbourhoods. And that's something that we've heard too from, you know, a little bit of criticism, especially from, from um, higher-profile uh, Democrats, Representative Charlie Chris, for example, saying that, Governor DeSantis has been using political favoritism and distributing the vaccine to benefit his political allies and donors. Um, I, I mean, I wonder, from the point of view of what you're trying to do, can you kind of get past the politics just for the sake of, of making sure that the vaccine is distributed? Or you, are you do you have to focus a little bit on that as well? No, we can definitely get past, past the politics as long as the state and our elected officials don't use these dosages as political favor in our community. We want to prioritize their health, their healing, and the ability to get back into our communities. We don't want to prioritize election results and campaigns that we know are getting ready to take over our state in the next year. Bakari Burns, back to you. Um, you've pushed back a little bit at the idea that the um, disparities we're seeing, it's not just because of hesitancy, because there's been a lot reported on um, the notion that folks in the black community may be hesitant to get the vaccine, unwilling to take it. Um, and you're really saying, well, it's really more of an avail- availability issue. I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on that idea. Yeah, sure. So uh, you hear about the vaccine hesitancy that uh, is among African Americans and other minorities, and that's true. There is some, you know, some hesitancy that needs to be addressed. There's some uh, longstanding discrimination that has happened in our healthcare industry, and that needs to be addressed. So there is some hesitancy. And what, I, but what I've seen in our uh, community members who are 65 and and above, there was uh, less of a talk of hesitancy, but more of access and accessibility. And so my concern with the thought of the hesitancy is that the vaccine hesitancy could then be used as an excuse not to be aggressive and do all we can to get it in these in the communities who've been hit the hardest. So while there is vaccine hesitancy, that's something that we as a community have to uh, begin to discuss and, and address. But also we have to make sure that the ex- access is there and not allow hesitancy to be an excuse for not doing all we can to get these vaccines in these communities that have been hard hit. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of a- approaching this from the from the perspective of somebody who's been working in nonprofit healthcare for a long time, as well as uh, you know responding to the needs of your constituents, right? So, do you feel like you can sort of bring some ideas over from from the work that you do in a professional sense to to what you're trying to do a- as an advocate for the people you serve? Uh, yes, definitely. You know, because what, what I've learned in nonprofit healthcare is that first you have to listen. You have to identify the individuals who are being impacted, listen to their stories, listen to them, and ask them for suggestions of how can we better serve you. And that's what we did when we went around to the seniors knocking on doors to say, how can we make these vaccines more accessible to you? We receive that feedback and then we implement those those ideas. Mm-hmm. 
Jasmine, um, I wanted to pick up too on the idea of uh, taking the vaccine to people rather than as 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 important as an idea as as putting um, vaccination sites, you know, closer to where people are. I mean, what do you think of the idea of of um, having mobile uh, distribution? Is, is that something that that would work going forward? Certainly, we are of the belief that we should be meeting folks where they are. And we know that one of the places we can meet them, especially our seniors, folks who are probably a part of, you know, silent generations or um, are not in, you know, the the physical ability to go about their day to day in our communities, we should be meeting them in their homes, in their um, assisted living facilities. I think that that is a great opportunity and a great tactic to expand on the accessibility if we truly mm -hmm. want to prioritize our seniors. And now the expanded opportunity around folks who are part of um, our first responder and teaching communities. So meeting folks where they are, I think, is definitely an opportunity for expansion. What about the idea too of of um, partnering up with churches? Is that an effective uh, way to move forward? It is. They are our pastors, our trusted messengers in our community. Folks are going to church if they aren't going anywhere else, at least for those facilities that are open. And so they trust their pastors for a lot of their personal professional decision making. They're also going to trust their uh, faith leaders for their healthcare decisions, coupled with their doctors. Um, recommendation. So partnering with churches who are also closest to the community make the best sense for them to be the, the best trusted messengers um, when it comes to distributing those vaccinations. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Jasmine Burney-Clark with Equal Ground Education Fund. We're also speaking with Orlando City Commissioner Bakari Burns talking about vaccine distribution and trying to bridge some of the disparity in distribution. Um, the opening of the FEMA um, vaccination sites in Central Florida and and where those are situated. Um, Bakari Burns, what do you hope to see once those are up and running? Well, uh, I'm excited about the site that will be opening at uh, Valencia West. Uh, I also understand that uh, along with that, there will be some uh, satellite sites. So I'm very interested to see where those would be located because that's going to be key. Accessibility is key. Uh, and so, you know, and I'm hoping that the data, they would use data to drive or at least talk with some of the elected officials and some of the uh, trusted community members, maybe pastors, to see what's the best place to locate some of these satellite sites, again, so it's accessible to the communities who are hardest hit. So I'm excited about the expansion. Uh, I applaud the expansion. I applaud uh, Walmart's efforts. But again, uh, we still have several other steps to take, and we need to ensure that the data is driven our decisions of where we place these uh, these locations and who we offer the vaccines to. Jasmine, your thoughts on, on the FEMA sites and, and what difference that might make? Yeah, so the FEMA sites have been propped up in four of our um, communities across the state of Florida. This is two months after the first vaccination was provided to us in the state. And it was also as a result of the cries and the attention and the hard hitting, um, you know, 
approach that folks have taken to let the governor know that he didn't do the rollout correctly. It's also a result of the federal government taking a hold of the situation and saying we need to control how vaccinations are being distributed in communities since states aren't really taking the lead the way that they should. To uh, Commissioner Burns' point, they should have been provided to communities where it's hardest hit. Although um, black and brown folks represent a, a lower number of folks in the state, they are also the ones who are highly affected by the coronavirus virus across the entire nation. And so this is a federal government decision that was made and not one that was made um, in chorus with our governor because of his choice to cherry pick where he placed those vaccination sites across the state. So what else do you do you want to see done? What do you hope will happen from here on out? Well, my hope is that they expand the FEMA sites across the state of Florida. Um, and that four is just not enough. Uh, Florida is a fastly growing state, and we know that there are populations who need access to the vaccination. My hope is also that FEMA will work to ensure organizations like mine and community health care centers, like the one that Bakari works with, have the resources they need to make as many phone calls as they can. They can help pre-register our community who may or may not have access to computers or may not be able to use those. And that we also expand our transportation options to get folks to and from their vaccination locations as some of the ways to expand this rollout. Um, I am not of the mindset that we need to rush to a specific finish line or North Star that no one really knows about and is arbitrary. We need to properly ensure that folks are receiving the first and second dosage and then moving to the next categories in a way that is responsible. Mm -hmm. And I guess with the approval of the the one-shot vaccine from Johnson & Johnson, that could actually speed things up a bit, right? It could, and I'm hopeful that it will be something that, you know, the next level of expansion for the different age groups, um, that, you know, it increases the ability for the amount of people who can get the dosage and, you know, move about our communities. Um, But I'm hopeful that, you know, it's, it's going to be effective. Just back to that notion of transportation, Bakari Burnsman, your your office has been helping register and coordinate transportation for seniors. Um, we talked a little bit about access to um, the internet and 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 other sort of sign up means, but are there some other things we haven't discussed which which makes make it particularly difficult for seniors to to get access to vaccines? Yeah, so uh, I think we've talked about many of them, uh, but transportation, as uh, Ms. Bernie Clark mentioned, is a huge uh, huge concern. But we're fortunate that Lynx has stepped up and stated that they would provide uh, transportation for individuals. And, and, and Matt, that's what's uh, the beauty of our community. We have so many community assets and everyone is coming together, lending their expertise, their resources, their assets to help individuals get, um, you know, get uh, access to the vaccines. Now, one thing that we're, we're very fortunate that uh, the Biden administration has taken uh, taking control and, and implemented a federal approach because part of that approach will be sending vaccines directly to community health centers uh, like the one that I run. Uh, so we would we would be able to administer those uh, vaccines right in the community from the health centers to the patients that we care for and then open it up to, uh, to the, commu- the general community uh, as well. And we're particularly... Uh, interested in that approach because we serve a special population, our community members who are experiencing homelessness. So we're very excited about this uh, Johnson & Johnson shot because uh, the vaccine, because it's one shot. Uh, when we talk about some of our community members who are experiencing homelessness and the transient nature of, of their lives, 
uh, it's going to be important that once we get them, if we can give them that one shot and know that they're fully vaccinated, that is going to that is going to be key for us. So now what we're looking at doing is developing our internal approach to ensure that some of the most vulnerable of our community members, like those who are experiencing homelessness, have also have access to these vaccines uh, in a timely manner as well. Yeah, it's an interesting um, point too, because uh, I mean, delivering healthcare to the homeless can be challenging at the best of times. Do you have a sense of of how effective it's been? If we're talking about folks who are homeless in the sixty five and older age category so far? Yeah. So what we've been doing, uh, we have mobile testing that we've been partnering with uh, with homeless shelters, uh, serve, uh, homeless service uh, uh, organizations throughout the community. So we've been providing those testing, and we're just waiting for the opportunity now to be able to provide vaccines in that in that same manner. But also we have a, a lot of our community members who are unsheltered homeless who actually live in the wooded areas of our community. And so we have specific individuals that go out into those communities, find those individuals and deliver healthcare services right there in the wooded areas. So we're gonna take that same approach in ensuring that our community members who are unsheltered, living out in the woods, will now have access to these vaccines. Jasmine, how do you see this playing out over the next couple of months? Are you optimistic that um, the, the, the disparity we're seeing now will start to be to, to trend in the right direction as, as more vaccine becomes available? Yep, I, I am optimistic. I am also um, hopeful that our state has heard the request from community organizations, members, faith leaders, about the need to provide a accessible options for vaccination. Um, we are also monitoring the statistics in the state from the date that we started our mass communication and the, the date that these centers have been open in the communities we're working in to see if we also see a difference and if our efforts are making a difference, we will start to make our own direct phone banking to communities next week now that the first layer of text messages have gone out. Um, and we, we hope to see that that it is favorable and that there is an increase based on the collective approach that we've all taken. But um, we are ready and prepared to go ahead and expand our efforts to the next wave of folks in the next age group if all goes well this first round. Well, Jasmine Bernie-Clark is the founder of the Equal Ground Education Fund. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We're also joined by Bakari Burns. He's the Orlando City Commissioner for District 6 and the CEO and President of Orange Blossom Family Health. Uh, Bakari, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Clarissa Moon and Abe Abariah. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Your support keeps shows like Intersection on the air and supports the reporting of the WMFE news team. Make a contribution during our spring drive. Call 1-800-785-2020 or go to our website, wmfe.org. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.